Welcome to Get Sleepy, where we listen, we relax, and we get sleepy. My name's Thomas. Thank you for joining me as you look forward to a good night's rest. Tonight's story was written by Jessica Doan, and we'll be joining two scientists, Nora and Bert, on their maiden voyage back in time to the age of dinosaurs. This time-traveling duo will share their account of the trip in a journal, taking turns writing about the events of each day. Tonight's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes in life, we're faced with tough choices, and the path forward isn't always clear. I'm definitely an indecisive type, which can feel rather frustrating, but the weight of big decisions has always felt lighter once I've spoken to a friend or my therapist. Whether you're dealing with decisions around career, relationships, or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life acting a bit like a roadmap so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend giving BetterHelp a try. Their service is entirely online, and it's designed to fit around your schedule in whatever way suits you. You just fill out a short questionnaire, and they match you with a licensed therapist. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash getsleepy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash getsleepy. Now then, let's just take a moment to get nicely settled in. Make sure you're comfortable in bed or wherever you're listening. With your breathing steady and relaxed, feel the weight of your body easing deeper into the surface below. Notice the points of contact between your body and the surface. Feel those parts of your body relaxing more and more as you appreciate and enjoy the opportunity to completely let go. Tonight's tale is a little different from our others. We'll follow the progress of Nora and Bert via their personal journals, as they do something that has never been done before. Observe the magnificent beasts of the late Cretaceous period. So... 
In each part of this story, I will review the daily journal entry as it comes in each evening when it's uploaded to the timeship's mainframe. I had just received Nora's daily log on the first day of the mission. While my computer downloads and decrypts the information, let your worries drift away as you clear your mind. If you happen to fall asleep, rest assured that the computer stores these journal entries indefinitely, so you can come back to listen to them at any time. Now, let's start with the first entry submitted by Nora. This is where our story begins. Mission, the time trip. Day one, Nora. Just a couple of minutes ago, our lifelong work, the time ship, left for the first time in history. After years of research and development, Bert and I finally got our time travel ship ready for use. The vessel looks like a futuristic spaceship. It is gunmetal grey, circular in shape, and has wings that curve around the sides. I'm so happy to be doing this trip with Bert. I remember when we first met, we had the same dream and vision. Instead of making fun of my work on time travel, he filled in the gaps and helped me. That's one of the things I like most about Bert, his relentless optimism and dogged persistence. And now, all our hard work is paying off. This day is momentous, as we are the first people to successfully launch such a mission. And back to the Cretaceous period, no less. Around 90 million years ago. All our lives, we have dreamt of going back in time to the age of dinosaurs. There are three periods in which the creatures roamed the earth, so we had to pick which one we most wanted to visit for our first voyage. 
after much deliberation and many meetings with our team, we finally decided on the last period of the Mesozoic era. It's the one after the Jurassic period, the Cretaceous. It was a difficult decision. However, when we realized that we would see more of the dinosaurs that we really wanted to see at this point in time, our minds were made up. We would have a couple of days before we had to return home. So, after inputting the year and GPS coordinates, the vessel zipped through the fabric of space-time. And in mere moments, we found ourselves back in the past. All things considered, the trip went smoothly. And now, here we are, in the late Cretaceous period. The first thing I noticed when the ship settled on the ground was the colors. Brilliant streaks of gold, pink, and orange lit up the early evening sky. It was breathtaking. Bert and I looked out the window at a world untouched by humans. It was so green, so vibrant, and so full of life. We had landed somewhere near modern-day Montana in the western United States. Right away, we spotted some differences. Instead of fields of grass, much of the low-growing ground cover consisted of ferns, cycads, and other similar plants, including flowering ones. There were mountains covered in forests of conifers in the distance. Several streams cut across the land, coming down from the nearby mountains. The gauges indicated that the environment outside was warm and humid, much more than what we're used to but still bearable. We would be able to breathe and function normally. Before we did anything else, we set to work configuring the ship. The timeship is state-of-the-art, outfitted with cutting-edge technology. At the push of a button, it can adjust to any environment. 
we enabled the outer shield, which would make the ship appear invisible. It would also emit a safe and gentle sonic frequency that animals could hear, to encourage them not to come too close. This way, we could observe everything without attracting the attention of any nearby creatures. Once everything was safe and secure, we got out of our seats, left the bridge, and climbed the stairs that led up to the roof. Up there, in the middle of the ship, there's an observation dome. We both grabbed our cameras and journals, eager to start sightseeing. As we took our positions, we looked out over the landscape. We could hear something big coming, as the ground seemed to vibrate. That's when we saw them. A herd of Triceratops was passing by, right in front of us. I counted at least ten of them. They were one of the more easily recognizable dinosaurs, and utterly magnificent, even more so in person. Each of the Triceratops had two big horns on its head, positioned in front of a large, bony frill that reached nearly three feet in diameter. They also had a third horn above the snout and a parrot-like beak. What was really striking was their color. I guess I was expecting them to be the color of a rhinoceros. But instead, they were a brownish hue, with bright red stripes, probably to ward off predators. The name Triceratops means three-horned face which is certainly fitting. I remembered that they were a type of Ceratopsian, the name for a kind of beaked herbivore of this period. They looked to be about 30 feet in length and weighed at least seven tons. Glancing over at Bert, I saw that his mouth was wide open, just like mine. This was the first dinosaur to ever be seen with human eyes. And it was a moment we would never forget. I took several snapshots of the grazing herbivores 
despite their enormous size, they moved quite gracefully. It was a wonder to watch. Looking closely, I realized that other dinosaurs were moving along with the herd of Triceratops. An adult Ankylosaurus with its baby came into view. They had horny beaks and leaf-shaped teeth, which were ideal for eating vegetation. Both were a dull, grayish-brown color and covered with tough outer armor. The name Ankylosaurus comes from ancient Greek and means fused lizard. With their club-shaped tails swinging back and forth, they could crush anything that got in their way. The mum was as large as a military tank, weighing about five tons, measuring thirty feet long, and reaching a height of six feet. Her baby was a third of her size. It was surprising how slowly they moved. This plant-eating dinosaur wasn't able to move any faster than a human could walk, about three miles an hour. The mother and child were communicating with each other. Their vocalizations were much more subtle and melodious than I expected. Dinosaur sounds are somewhat of an unknown. So, to hear these dinosaurs being so vocal was more than a little exciting. Their rumbles and grunts had an intricate complexity that astounded me. It was almost like birdsong. Speaking of birds, I noticed several hairy feathered ones flitting through the air. Grabbing a pair of binoculars, I looked towards the nearby forest, interested in seeing what other kinds of animals I could find. There were tiny, shrew-like mammals scurrying through the underbrush. I also saw several types of frogs, salamanders, and snakes. It was surreal to see them in this kind of setting. This place was a mixture of familiar and foreign, like an altered reality in a way. We waited to watch the sunset before deciding to have dinner. 
After taking the stairs back down to the ship, we wandered over to the small kitchen that was across from the sleeping quarters. I really appreciated having the comforts of home on such a mission. As we sat down to enjoy steaming bowls of soup, Bert and I discussed the game plan for the next few days. I couldn't wait to share our findings with the team once we made it back home. This trip was truly a once in a lifetime experience. We were determined to make the most of it. Bert cleaned up the dishes after dinner while I went to retrieve a few blankets and pillows for our stargazing venture. He met me on the stairs, and together we climbed up to the hatch that opened up onto the roof. We were protected as long as we were on or near the ship, so there was nothing to worry about. I couldn't help but marvel at the technology that enables us to do such wonderful things. Bert opened the hatch door, and I followed him out. The temperature had cooled down a bit, although it was still humid outside. All around us, a chorus of calls rang out evidence of the nocturnal creatures that were out and about. The insect soundscape was notably different from the one we were used to. I could tell that these cricket-like insects had a much greater musical range than the ones of our time. I wondered if one of the sounds we could hear was male katydids, known as bush crickets, rubbing part of their wings together to make communication sounds. We lay down on the blankets, our heads nestled on the pillows, looking up at the glittering night sky. I couldn't find words to describe the beauty of it. There were so many stars, almost as if they had multiplied tenfold, and they sparkled like the rarest of diamonds. There wasn't a trace of pollution to affect their power or luminosity. It felt like every star that had ever existed was visible tonight. 
the arrangement of the stars was completely different from what we knew. I couldn't find the Big Dipper because that formation had yet to line up at this point in time. There was an interesting cluster of bright stars low on the horizon. It was amazing to think that because of the finite speed of light, as we gazed up into the night sky, we were looking into the past while in the past. However far away these stars were from us, correlated with how long the light of those stars had been traveling. For example, if a star is ten light years away, the light hitting our eyes has traveled for ten years. To put it another way, when we looked at that star tonight, we saw it as it was ten years ago. Bert and I stayed outside for another hour, soaking in the starry sky and listening to the myriad noises filtering through the air. It was such a peaceful atmosphere. We both started to get rather sleepy and decided to call it an evening. Who knew time travel could make you so tired? As I stood and Bert began to gather up the blankets and pillows, I noticed a huge shadowed form not too far from us. The binoculars were still hanging from my neck, so I raised them up to my eyes to get a better look. What I saw astounded me. It was a Tyrannosaurus Rex asleep. This was the creature that likely had the greatest bite force of all land animals to ever exist. But the enormous predator didn't look so scary lying down with its huge head resting on the ground. Nudging Bert with my elbow, I pointed to the slumbering giant as I handed him the binoculars. He looked through them and became so still, I'm pretty sure he stopped breathing. We'd spoken about how we dreamt of seeing this very dinosaur in a safe way. And now, our wish was coming true before our very eyes. Also, we had always harbored a 
deep curiosity about the possible ways dinosaurs slept. This was because there was no way to be sure, not even from the fossil record, or at least not conclusively. Bert turned to me, and I could tell he was just as speechless and in awe as I was. After a few more minutes of watching the formidable predator sleep, we left the T-Rex to its dreams. I opened the hatch and climbed down into the ship as Bert followed. He closed the door behind him while I set to work turning off all the lights inside before heading to the sleeping quarters. As I climbed into bed, I was still thinking about how dinosaurs slept. We had seen a T-Rex, but what about the others? I knew from fossils that had been discovered that small species probably curled up in a ball on the ground. Or perhaps it had something to do with their legs. For two-legged dinosaurs like the T-Rex, it was probably more comfortable to lie down. But maybe four-legged creatures slept while standing up. As I drifted off to sleep, I imagined the dinosaurs all around us doing the same. Mission, the time trip. Day two, Bert. Nora and I woke up refreshed and ready to tackle our second day in the late Cretaceous period. I was still thinking about seeing the T-Rex last night. It wasn't at all what we were expecting. The dinosaur looked so peaceful, sleeping soundly beneath the stars. Nora sipped the coffee I had brewed earlier while I made us some scrambled eggs. After breakfast, we grabbed our gear and walked down to the hangar where the time buggy sat waiting for us. Since we both wanted to drive, we played rock-paper-scissors to determine the winner. Nora won with a grin and took the driver's seat as I claimed the passenger seat next to her. 
the vehicle was more like an armored truck, reminding me distinctly of the Ankylosaurus that we had seen just yesterday. I still couldn't believe we had actually made it here. I knew that Nora felt the same, beyond elated for our life's dream to have come to fruition. This trip meant the world to both of us. She flipped on the necessary switches and the vehicle rumbled to life while the hangar door opened behind us. Shifting the gear to reverse, she angled the truck out of the time ship. It was a beautiful morning. Everything was so green that it almost felt like we were in a tropical forest. When we got a few meters away from the ship, Nora pressed the button to close the hangar door. As we drove on, the ship was soon hidden from sight. It was strange not to be able to see it. We had packed a few sandwiches for lunch, so we had the whole day to explore the lush landscape. Since she won driving privileges, my job was to log our findings in my journal and take pictures while out on our excursion. The truck moved easily through the thickest of green plants as we kept our eyes peeled for dinosaurs. Our efforts were soon rewarded as the biggest creatures on the continent came within eyesight. It was a family of gigantic, dusky blue sauropods, titanosaurs to be exact. They were leading a parade of dinosaurs over the land and eating from the high treetops. The ground shook under the weight of their movement. Their extremely long necks, small heads, long tails, and four thick, pillar-like legs were instantly recognizable. They had to be the most incredible creatures I had ever seen. Maybe even more than the sleeping T-Rex. I realized then that no movie or drawing did these dinosaurs justice. Towering at a height of at least 40 feet, and with a length 
of what had to be a hundred feet. They dominated the landscape. Their necks stretched longer than a school bus. At that moment, I had never felt so immeasurably small in comparison. These magnificent creatures were literal giants, and I couldn't believe that I was seeing them in person. Nora speculated that the sauropods must weigh an immense fifty tons each, which I could well believe. We got as close to them as we could, then stopped the truck. They couldn't see us unless we wanted them to, and we agreed it was better not to disturb them. Watching the enormous creatures, I realized that this had to be the Alamosaurus species, as that was the only known sauropod in North Africa from this time period. As we watched, Nora and I discussed what we knew about these remarkable creatures. The name Alamosaurus means Alamo Lizard. It's believed that they migrated to North America from South America, following the joining together of the two continents by the Isthmus of Panama. I snapped several photos. After jotting down their descriptions and characteristics in my journal. At first, I thought a group of Triceratops were among them, but closer inspection proved me wrong. They were Ceratopsians, like the Triceratops but differed slightly. Where a nasal horn should be, there was only a rounded stump, and the horns on its head were almost vertical. Each of them had a bony frill at the back of its head, just like a triceratops, but it was smaller. I pointed them out to Nora. If anyone knew what dinosaur this was, it was her. She had that look in her eye that told me she was deep in thought. After a few moments, she nodded, explaining that they were called Nedocaratops. This happens to be a controversial genus. The Nedocaratops has baffled paleontologists since it was first described more than a hundred years ago in our time. 
That's because it is only known from a single skull, one that some researchers consider valid, while others consider it to be an already named genus. But here we saw for ourselves the truth of the matter. This was indeed its own dinosaur, not just some transitional form of the Triceratops. We drove closer, eager to witness a scientific breakthrough as we confirmed the existence of the dinosaur. I could tell how much this meant to Nora, and I made sure to take as many pictures of them as possible. Our team would be thrilled about this. After a few hours of observing the late Cretaceous wildlife, Nora stopped the truck and we had lunch. While we were enjoying our sandwiches, a herd of Edmontosaurs passed us by. These dinosaurs were light brown with some striping. They had large, hunched-over backs, duck-billed faces, and fleshy, rooster-like combs atop their heads. It looked like they weighed around five tons and were forty feet long. Nora commented that these dinosaurs are one of the most studied of all time. This is because of the exceptional specimens and bone beds that have been discovered. She said that the T-Rex was thought to hunt these dinosaurs in particular. Apparently, fossil evidence shows healed wounds inflicted by the predator. It's believed that the Edmontosaurus could reach speeds of up to 28 miles per hour. That's even faster than a T-Rex. As if on cue, the herd took off, showing us just how fast they could move. I must say, those dinosaurs were speedy for their size. We polished off our food, and Nora turned the truck around, heading back to the time ship. A couple of small, ostrich-like feathered dinosaurs raced alongside us, although we knew they couldn't see us. They proved to be even faster than the Edmontosaurs. The colourful bipedal creatures 
moved in synchrony. I knew that these had to be a type of theropod dinosaur, known as Ornithomimus. Their name means bird mimic, which is just what they looked like. The way they moved made me wonder if they were running to or away from something. We didn't stick around to find out. Nora accelerated, the truck pulling away from the agile dinosaurs. Once we were back on the ship, and the truck was secured in the hangar, Nora suggested a change of plan. I know what she's like when she sets her mind on something. She won't stop until she sees it through. It's one of her best qualities. It was such a beautiful day that we decided to take the ship up in the air to explore the skies. We got in our seats at the front of the ship, and Nora adjusted the controls to the aerial settings. As the ship rose off the ground and climbed into the air, we fastened our seat belts. The sky was a lovely shade of bright blue, a perfect complement to the greenery below us. There were scores of butterflies fluttering through the sky, which looked similar to the ones we knew. They had to be one of the oldest known species. The ship gained more altitude, and soon we were flying unseen and undetected. A few minutes later, we broke through the clouds to find tetrasaurs all around us. They were the largest flying creatures I had ever seen. Considering the time and place, these aerial titans must have been the Quetzalcoatlus species. From what I recall, they were named after an Aztec god, a feathered serpent. I could see why. Nora's eyes widened at the sight of them, gliding through the air. Each creature was as tall as a giraffe, with a wingspan of more than thirty feet. These tetrasaurs were greyish-brown, with long pointed heads, long necks 
small torsos, and elongated legs. They also had a small crest on their heads. As I took photos, I remembered learning that these amazing winged reptiles were the first vertebrates to fly. It was strange to know that they weren't dinosaurs at all, although they did share a common ancestor with them. Other flying reptiles and birds soared through the air, but I only had eyes for the pterosaurs, amazed to be seeing them for the first time. We flew for miles and miles toward the coast. There was something odd about seeing the map of the world on the dash compared to what we were used to seeing in our day. When we got to the shore, we decided to land the ship on the beach and watch the tide roll in. It was too beautiful not to. After dinner, we called it an evening. We were both tired and needed some rest. Tomorrow, we'll explore the ocean before returning home. Mission, the time trip. Day three, Nora. Today was the last day of our mission. Bert and I woke up to another sunny morning, ready to see what the ocean had in store for us. After a quick breakfast, we climbed into our seats at the front of the ship. Bert started to flip the switches that would enable us to go deep-sea exploring. We rose up in the air and flew towards the water, landing on the surface before sinking into its depths. Soon, we were submerged, looking out the window as dark blue water swelled all around us. The ship was now emitting a specific frequency that would deter any underwater creature from approaching it, leaving us safe and sound to observe. As Bert fiddled with the controls, I leaned forward in my seat, eager to witness something spectacular. We passed many different kinds of fish, 
even a few stingrays and sharks. So far, everything looked quite similar to what we were used to, until a long-necked marine reptile swam by, swinging its head from side to side through a school of fish. It was a plesiosaur, roughly fifteen feet long, with dark blue coloring. It swam by flapping its fins in the water, almost like underwater flight. Bert commented on how it reminded him of drawings he'd seen of the Loch Ness Monster. He had a point. It certainly looked like a myth brought to life. The plesiosaur eventually swam out of view. We soon found out why, as a giant, snake-like mosasaur slinked past the window. This creature was the apex predator of the deep, with a stronger bite force than the T-Rex. With a dark grey body that was easily fifty feet long, a large head and a long snout, it looked the part. The massive reptile moved with a serpentine undulation of its whole body, while using its paddle-like limbs to maneuver. We watched in fascination as the mosasaur slunk through the water, alternating between slow and fast bursts of speed. All the fish and other creatures took off, no doubt to escape the jaws of this truly impressive beast. This creature was one of the most amazing success stories of not only the Cretaceous period, but of the entire Mesozoic. That's because mosasaurs evolved from being very small, semi-aquatic lizards to the apex predators of the world's oceans. And they did so within a period of time spanning less than 35 million years. Their ability to rapidly adapt to a variety of aquatic habitats and eat pretty much anything and everything worked in their favor. The mosasaur sped away in search of its prey, leaving us speechless. We enjoyed a few more hours under the water 
taking pictures and notes of everything we saw. But eventually, it was time to go back home to the future. Although our trip was coming to an end, Bert and I were ecstatic. This mission proved to be more than just a success. It was life-changing. We were the very first humans to visit the late Cretaceous period, and the dinosaurs exceeded all our expectations. Before, they seemed more like mythical creatures than anything else. Even though fossil evidence proved they did indeed exist, seeing them for ourselves was a whole other matter. And we're going to share our findings with the world. This was not only a huge step for us, but for science and humankind as well. And who knows, one day, maybe we'll have the chance to time travel again. <laughs>